Back in 2013, Edward Snowden wanted to start his communication in private. In a previous Hacker Mind episode, I talked about how to make our online activities relatively anonymous. In this case, though, Snowden needed to secure his laptop as well. So, how do you go about doing that? Common operating systems like Windows, iOS, Android, and even Linux all contain some form of vulnerabilities. All software does. So they needed a secure operating system, one that is encrypted from day one. And that means it's unavailable to anyone without a key to unlock it. Basically, a hard disk encryption works like this. Whenever you boot up your device, you must also unlock the encrypted files. So you have to enter a secure passphrase. Even after you decrypt it, you still have to enter another password to get inside the operating system. Once open, all your files are available to you as they would normally be unencrypted device. This, however, creates the possibility that if you get up and leave your device, even for a moment, someone could now access all of your files since they're all unlocked. As soon as you shut down your computer, though, the encryption kicks in and the device encrypts your files that you're working on. Is this type of security enough? Stick around and we'll find out. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about the types of attacks that affect your digital devices and the precautions that you can take to secure your data. When I wrote The Art of Invisibility, I challenged my co-author, Kevin Mitnick, to document all the steps that you would need to become invisible online. And there are a lot of them. Kevin, you may recall, spent many years hiding from the FBI under different names and in different cities. This was before the commercial internet, when it was easier to forge paper documents and create new identities. Today, that's not so easy. And that's not really what we're talking about, hiding from the FBI or law enforcement in general. Now, in this episode, I'm providing an advanced look at the topic of securing your data in general. If you haven't, you might want to listen to episode 41 first. There, I lay out the groundwork for all the steps you need to become anonymous online, such as using cutouts to buy burner laptops and burner phones. With all of those steps in place to obscure your activities online, there are still more steps necessary if you want to truly become invisible, and that's at the device level. So in this episode, I'll explain. Obviously, someone like Edward Snowden wanted to keep his information private, and he knew the traditional operating systems, Windows, Apple, Linux, wouldn't be enough for him. So he turned to Tails OS. What's that? Well, it's a bootable version of the Onion Router, or Tor, and it is great for encrypting disk portability, especially when you're traveling. First step is to download the latest version of Tails onto a DVD or a USB stick. Then, when you go to boot your device, Tails instantly encrypts your emails, files, and instant messages. Given that it is on a bootable DVD or USB, Tails allows you to boot any machine and to use Tor without leaving any evidence on the machine after you are gone. But short of installing a new OS every time you use Tails, you might want to encrypt the hard drive on your traditional PC permanently. Turns out you have several choices. One of them is free, and it's old. 
So TrueCrypt, it still exists, but it's no longer maintained. Back when it was being produced, it was audited many times and found to be very secure and not having any backdoors. However, because it is no longer maintained by its originator, any new vulnerabilities will not be updated. So use TrueCrypt at your own risk. There are paid programs. One of the obvious is Windows BitLocker. BitLocker takes advantage of a special chip on your motherboard known as Trusted Platform Module, or TPM. TPM is designed to unlock your encryption key only after confirming that your bootloader hasn't been modified. You can set BitLocker to unlock when you power up and lock only when there's a pin or a special USB that you provide. The latter choices, well, obviously, they provide much more security. So you have the option of saving the key to Microsoft account. I really don't recommend that because you're more or less giving Microsoft your keys to your hard drive. But guess what? You must also share the key with Microsoft unless you want to pay them an additional $250 or so. This may allow, and some point, for law enforcement to request the key from Microsoft. Another issue is that BitLocker uses a pseudorandom number generator called Dual EC DRBG, which has been known to break. It is also private, meaning that unlike open source projects, you must have to take Microsoft's word that it works or it doesn't have any backdoors leading to, say, the NSA. Despite these reservations, the EFF, the Electronic Freedom Foundation, actually does recommend BitLocker for the average consumer looking to protect their files on their hard drives. Yet another option is commercial, and it's from Symantec. This is PGP Whole Disk. It's originally created by Phil Zimmerman, the man who created PGP for email. PGP stands for Pretty Good Privacy. Like BitLocker, PGP works with the TPM chip to provide additional authentication when you turn on your PC. A perpetual license runs for about $200 US. For Apple, there's FileVault. And again, do not save your encryption key with your Apple account. Instead, choose Create a Recovery Key and do not use my iCloud account as an option. Then print out or write down a 24-character key. Protect this key, as anyone who finds it could be able to unlock your hard drive. iPhone 8 and above automatically encrypts the contents of your mobile phone. Going a step further, Apple has said that the key is on the device and with the user. That means that if law enforcement were to get a request to Apple, Apple would say, I don't have access to it, it's on the device. Google has required manufacturers to enable full disk encryption starting with Android 6.0 or Marshmallow, which debuted back in 2015. So why all this concern about encrypting the data on your device? Well, turns out there are several interesting attacks that could occur, one of which is known as the evil maid. Years ago, researcher Joanna Rukowska wrote about what she called the evil maid attack. Say someone leaves a hard drive encrypted with either TrueCrypt or PGP whole disk encryption in their hotel room. How would evil maid work? Someone, say a maid, enters the room and inserts in the powered down laptop a USB stick containing the evil maid program and then proceeds to reboot the device. 
After two or three seconds, the laptop becomes infected with the Evil Maid Sniffer. A sniffer is a program that monitors any activity within the system. And in this case, it is monitoring for the hard disk encryption passphrase the next time the user enters it. So a maid or someone who has frequent hotel room access without too much suspicion could be the best candidate for this, hence the name. A maid can re-enter almost any hotel room the next day and obtain a copy of the passphrase and then unlock the encrypted hard drive. Or the passphrase can be broadcast to a more remote location. So what about putting your electronics into a hotel safe? Is that better than leaving the valuables out or in a suitcase? Well, actually, it's not much better. A German antivirus company, GData, found that in the hotel rooms where their research staff stayed, more often than not, the hotel safe had a default password in place. What? A default password? That means no matter what private password you select to safeguard your valuables, anyone knowing the default could also gain access to your valuables inside the hotel room safe. GData did qualify that this information was not discovered systemically, but anecdotally over several years. If an attacker doesn't know the default password for a given hotel safe, another option is for them to literally brute force the lock. While the hotel manager is encrypted with an emergency physical key, a savvy thief can simply unscrew the plate in the front of the safe and use a false key against the lock underneath. Or they could short-circuit the safe and initiate a reset where they enter in a new default code. If all that doesn't bother you, consider that GData also found that the credit card reader on the hotel safes, the means by which you pay for the use of the safe with your credit card in the room, those can also be read by a third party. A third party could skim the credit card data and then use or sell that information. While we're talking about hotels, I seem to get asked a lot about leaving or discarding hotel room key cards. The fear or suspicion is that finding a hotel key card on the street might lead to identity theft. That's unlikely. Here's why. Today's hotels use NFC or even magnetic stripe swipe cards to lock and unlock your room. The advantage is that the hotel can change the access codes quickly and easily from the front desk. If, for instance, you lose your card, you can request a new one, and instead of rekeying the door, a simple code is sent to the lock by the time you get to your room, new keys in hand. The presence of a magnetic strip or NFC chip has given rise to the idea that personal information might be stored on a hotel key card. It's not. But the urban legend continues. There's even a famous story out of San Diego where a sheriff's deputy issued a warning that hotel guests' name, home address, and credit card information had been found on hotel key cards. This email has been widely disputed, and it is even listed on several urban myths websites as being false. The information listed certainly could be stored on a key card, but it is not. And on the billing side, there's something called segmentation, meaning the billing data is separated from the hospitality data at most hotels. Hotels use a token, a placeholder number for each guest. Only with access to the back-end computers, you know, traditional hacking, could an attacker get that information on the billing, but even then they'd have to associate with the room number so, you don't need to collect and destroy old key cards, but all the same, you might still want to.
There's another way that you could spoil this near-perfect attempt on anonymity, and it's called Dark Hotel. Let's say you bring your encrypted device and you've gone under the radar, you've anonymized your phone, your, your burner laptop, all of that, and you go to stay at a five-star hotel with internet access. As you log into that internet access, perhaps you see a message informing you that the current version of Adobe on your machine requires an update. Well, being a good citizen of the internet, you might be tempted to download the update and simply move on. Except the hotel network could still be considered hostile. Even if it has a password included, it is not your home network. So the update, well, it might not be a real update. And if you go ahead and download it, you may have now put a malicious code onto your PC. So if you're on the road, as most of us find today after COVID, whether or not to update is really a tough call. There is little you can do except verify that there is actually an update from Adobe. The problem is, if you use the hotel's internet to download that update, you might still be directed to a spoofed website. If you can, use your mobile device to confirm the existence of the software update from the vendor's site itself. And if it's not critical, you probably can wait until you're back into a safe environment, such as a corporate office or even back home. Researchers at Kaspersky discovered a group of criminal hackers they called Dark Hotel. They operate by seeing what business executives might be staying at a particular luxury hotel, then anticipate their arrival by placing malware on the hotel server. When the executive checks in and connects to the hotel Wi-Fi, the malware is downloaded and executed on their device. And after the infection is complete, it is removed from the hotel server. Apparently, this has been going on for almost a decade. Although it primarily affects those staying at luxury hotels and primarily in Asia, it could be common elsewhere. The Dark Hotel Group generally uses low-level spear phishing attacks for mass targets and reserves the hotel attacks for more high-profile singular tarfic, such as executives in nuclear and defense industries. One early analysis suggests that Dark Hotel was a South Korean-based keylogger. That's a malware that records the keystrokes on compromised systems used in attacks that contains Korean characters within the code. And the zero days used are very advanced. So a South Korean name identified with a keylogger has been traced to other sophisticated keyloggers used by Koreans in the past. It should be noted, however, that this is not enough to confirm any attribution. Software can be cut and pasted from a variety of sources. So, software can be made to look as though it was created in one country when it actually is, in fact, created somewhere else. To get the malware on the laptops, Dark Hotel uses forged certificates that appear to look like they are actually come from the Malaysian government or from Deutsche Telekom. Certificates, if you remember, are used to verify the origin of the software or a web server. Both of these stolen certificates happen to use weak 512-bit encryption, which the attackers cracked. So they're able then to issue their malware under a legitimate certificate. To further hide their work, the malware stays dormant for up to six months before becoming active on the infected machines. This is to throw off IT departments that might link a visit with a particular infection. 
Kaspersky only learned of this attack when a group of its customers became infected while staying at one or two luxury hotels in Asia. The researchers turned to a third-party Wi-Fi host common to both. The Wi-Fi host partnered with the antivirus company to find out what was really happening on its networks. And although the files used to infect the guests were long gone, the deletion records were left behind that corresponded to the dates of the guests' stay. Back when I was writing Art of Invisibility in the summer of 2015, there was a lot of discussion about people being able to change the geolocation of their internet service. Since 2015, however, not many people have discussed this. Still, it's worth bringing up here. So what happened in 2015? There was this researcher named Ben Caudill of Rhino Security who announced that not only would he be speaking at DEF CON 23, but his new tool, ProxyHam, would also be selling in the vendor's room for about $200. Shortly after that announcement, however, Caudill announced that the talk was canceled and all existing units of ProxyHam would be destroyed. He did so without further explanation. Now, talks at security conferences have been polled for various reasons, either the vendors being mentioned or the federal government put pressure on the researcher not to go public with their findings. In this case, Cotto wasn't pointing out a particular flaw. He just simply built something brand new. Funny thing is about the internet is once that idea got out there, it tends to remain out there. So the feds or somebody tried to convince Cotto that his talk was not in the interests of national security, perhaps, or someone else could create an even newer device. So the idea behind ProxyHam is a very remote access point much like putting a Wi-Fi transmitter in your home or office. Except, in this case, the person using and controlling it could be up to a mile away. The Wi-Fi transmitter uses a second technology, in this case cellular, to connect to the user. The need for such devices is clear if you live in an oppressed country. Contacting the outside world through Tor is risky, and it's a risk that many people do take. This type of service would add another layer of security by masking the geolocation of the requester using Tor. In his interviews, Cotto denied that the US FCC had discouraged him from talking because the device violated laws that controlled the use of the radio spectrum. Wired.com speculated that security planting a proxy cam on someone else's network might be interpreted as unauthorized access under the US Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Cotto refuses to comment on any of this speculation. As I mentioned, once an idea is out there, anyone can run with it. So security researcher Sammy Kamkar created ProxyGamut, a device which essentially replaces ProxyHam. Except it uses reverse cellular traffic, meaning instead of being only a few miles from the device, you can be halfway around the world. This however, remains as a proof of concept, and it is not available. But the idea is still out there. So really, the only way you can change your geolocation is to use a VPN. 
So I frequently find myself encountering Amazon messages such as, we don't ship to the United States. And then I remember I'm using a VPN and I'm using it through a foreign country. Security researchers use VMs all the time. Here's the thing. If you want to be invisible, it's probably best not to trust the VPN provider with your real information. This requires setting up a fake email address in advance, which I talk about in episode 41, and using open wireless networks after randomizing your MAC address and making sure you're not on camera or there's no other physical evidence that you were there using the Wi-Fi at that time. See, it gets complicated. Once you have that fake email address, use Tor to set up a Bitcoin wallet and find a Bitcoin ATM to fund that wallet. Then use a mixer to essentially launder all that Bitcoin so it can't be traced back to you on the blockchain. Once you've achieved that level of true anonymity by opening Wi-Fi plus Tor, find a Tor service that uses Bitcoin for payment. Pay with the laundered Bitcoin. Some VPN providers block tour, so you'll need to find one, preferably in a country that doesn't require logging. In this case, we're not trusting the VPN provider with our real IP address or name. However, when using a newly set up VPN, you must be careful not to use any of your service in your real or your real name, or connect to a VPN from an address that can be linked back to you in any way, shape, or form. It is best to use open Wi-Fi or to purchase Portable hotspots. Again, purchased in such a way that it would be very, very difficult to trace back to you. For example, you could hire someone to purchase it for you so your face is not on camera in the store. You could also turn off your personal devices that use cellular radio when using an anonymous hotspot to prevent the pattern of your device registering the same site as the anonymous device every time you use it. Finally, another thing you can do is use a virtual machine. Security researchers use virtual machines all the time. They create and destroy them easily. But even among professional, there exists the possibility of some data leakage. For example, you might be on your VM version of Windows 10 and for some reason log into your personal email account. Hmm. Now that VM, that virtual machine, can be associated to you personally no longer anonymous. To keep everything you do online separate, I recommend that you purchase a separate laptop and only use that laptop for your anonymous activities. As I have mentioned in both episodes 41 and this episode, the nanosecond that you lapse and say, check your personal email account, that activity can be traced back to you and the anonymity is over. The other thing to remember is never boot that laptop up at home any connection to your Wi-Fi can establish you as the person. If you want to know more about encrypted operating systems such as Tails OS or other ways you can become anonymous or at least limit your exposure, my book, Art of Invisibility, with Kevin Mitnick from Little Brown and Company, is available wherever books are sold. And it is full of information on how to become invisible online, along with some great stories from Kevin. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. I don't want you to miss out. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts.
Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. For The Hacker Mine, I'm Robert Vimosi. <laughs>